This is Speaking Freely from the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm your host, Andy Hoover, Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Today, we are talking with one of my favorite people from the activist world, Brandy Fisher, the founder of the Alliance for Police Accountability. APA is a grassroots community-based organization in Pittsburgh. In this conversation, Brandy talks about the work of APA and why it is so needed in the Steel City. After the interview, I'll tell you about a bill we're working on at the state capitol that diminishes police transparency. It's a bill that the ACLU of Pennsylvania and APA are fighting together. Also in this episode, we have a new segment called Meet the Staff. It's a chance for you to hear from ACLU PA staffers who are doing the work of defending civil liberties. For our first Meet the Staff segment, I talked with Naima Sanchez. Naima is the transgender advocacy coordinator and an organizer for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. In our conversation, Naima talks about her day-to-day work, the concerns of the transgender community, and the intersectionality between transgender people and the criminal justice system. But first, let's talk with Brandy. This interview was recorded on March 27th. Brandy, let's just start talking about what is the Alliance for Police Accountability? Uh, The Alliance for Police Accountability is a grassroots organization. Um, When we say grassroots, uh, that means that we are, uh, most of our members and most of the people that we uh, deal with are directly impacted um, by the issue that we fight. And we are focused on criminal justice reconstruction, and we do that through advocacy, education, and policy. Okay, and APA was founded in 2010. What were what was the motivation? What were the events that led to the APA's finding? Founding. Actually, a young man by the name of Jordan Miles um, was a high school student at Kappa. He was brutally beaten, approximately three or four doors up from his own residence in Homewood. Homewood's considered a high crime area here in the city of Pittsburgh, one of its segregated, poverty-stricken areas, is what I would like to say. And um, and so police brutality and police misconduct is always common in areas that are poverty-stricken. This incident was no different. And in this particular zone, it was very prevalent. And so Jordan Miles, being a high school student, is what brought the interest into his situation for me personally. Uh, and so the organization was birthed out of that case. And there have been multiple high-profile incidents in Pittsburgh the last few years, and I want to talk about a couple of them. Um, But first, broadly, what do you think is the current state of uh, relations between the Pittsburgh police and the community it serves? One, I think it would depend on what what area of Pittsburgh you ask that question to. Mm -hmm. I'm very careful about when we say community, who we're talking about and what that means. And so Pittsburgh is a very segregated city by class and by race or ethnicity. And so it's very easily separated um, also by zones when it comes to the police, uh, the police department. And so some areas would probably say that they have a lovely relationship with the police officers, um, that they know their officers, um, and that they're very friendly. And that probably would be somewhere in Squirrel Hill. And then you would have some residents, um, mainly people of color or people who are poor or people with disabilities even, who might say very differently. And so as for those communities who have had a strained relationship uh, with the police department, I would say that the police department is in a is in a pretty is in a situation where they were moving forward very progressively and building relationships with the community, and they have moved backwards very drastically in a very short period of time. 
And I want to talk a little bit about that because when Mayor Peduto took office, he brought in a new commissioner from out of state, Cameron McClay. And I don't know if your last comment may be connected to that. I'll give you a chance to expand on that. But McClay came to town with a reputation as a reformer. Um, he was soon in the middle of a controversy when he held up a sign saying that he would challenge racism at the workplace. I also remember hearing that complaints about police misconduct actually went down during McClay's tenure. He was commissioner for just over two years. He resigned in November of 2016, and uh, he was replaced by Scott Schubert. Has the positive trajectory that McClay started continued, or was that a two-year blip on the radar? That was a two-year blip. Um, and I wouldn't even like to say it called a blip because he did a lot of work, mm-hmm. and it took a lot of courage, which is why he gained a lot of respect from the community mm-hmm. because it was obvious that he was being courageous, uh, and it was obvious that he was being balanced. The community knew that you couldn't pull him all the way over to just do or say anything. And they also knew that he respected his police officers um, and that he was a police officer um, as well. But he was a human being first. And that is what connected people to him. And when he came in, he was um, determined to do exactly what was set out to do. And I think that is what the shock was, because I think it was thought that the mayor found someone that was from the outside that would pretend to do a lot of work, but actually would just do whatever they were told because they're new. And when Chief McClay began to actually clean up his department as far as changing policies and um, what they needed to do internally, because that's what people don't understand. If you have a problem externally, the problem normally starts internally, whether you're talking about a human being, whether you're talking about an institution or a system. And Though we see the police in the community running rampant and acting wild, especially in the community um, of, of uh, people of people of color, they have a lot of issues internally that, if once were fixed, probably would have helped a lot of the uh, relationships with the community. And I think McClay started there, and I think him holding that sign up to say he challenges racism at work was a testament. So that's where he was starting to do the cleanup at. That caused a lot of friction with the FOP, and it seemed like McClay hit a brick wall there. How do you as an activist continue when you know that that cultural problem is so entrenched? You have to continue because, you know, the cultural problem is so entrenched. (laughs) I mean, that is the very reason you continue. Um, Because if you don't, then you're allowing that problem to just permeate, fester, and get worse. And you're allowing people to lose their lives at the hands of it. And that's as, as many times as you, you want to quit. Um, I just read an article yesterday uh, about a Black Lives Matter um, activist in Oakland, California, who was a friend of mine, Ashley Yates, uh, sister comrade, rather, and, you know, um, being open about her depression and doing this work. And so you have to, it, it is something that you have to have a balance in but people's lives are at stake. And the people whose lives are at stake are people who are not aware of how the system works. And so they have not even the first chance to even fight for themselves or fight for their lives. And knowing that that exists, you know, you just could never quit. Yeah, it's interesting in advocacy, you know, we wouldn't get up every day and do this if we weren't filled with hope, even though it can be exhausting at times and maybe makes you a little cynical. But you know, we just keep doing it because we have hope and, and we know that things have to change. 
Well, we've seen change and we've seen change here, right? We've seen change with McClay. And so it's not a magic thing. Change is not magical. It's just not wanted by the people who have the power. Mm -hmm. And so change can happen. Change has happened and change will continue to happen. But it's about how do we sustain this change? And then what are we changing? Are we changing lives? Are we changing cultures? Or are we just changing politicians? Or are we just changing rules? Right. And so it's about where our focus is and making sure that that change is sustainable, but making sure that we have a holistic approach. And this is what I try to tell people. We haven't we're not operating off of the model that we need to. And that's why I can't wait until our organization is resourced the way that we need to, because I really believe that we have a model that works. Mm -hmm. I think, one, that you can't do activism alone. I think, two, that you cannot uh, you cannot shut out the people who you are angry at for not making the decisions that they're supposed to, such as people as the district attorney, such as people as the chief of police, such as people as the mayor, um, because those are the people who make the decisions that you need to get what you want done. And so somebody has to have a conversation with them to make sure that that happens. And then lastly, you have to educate people. You, If you educate people, you don't have to do too much organizing uh, because once people know how this works. Once people are educated on how to fight, most people are not involved in the fight because they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They don't know the first step to take. Um, and so once they know how to fight, uh, they'll be right there on the front lines with you. And so we have to advocate for individuals. We have to educate the community, but we have to make sustainable change and really change legislation and policy. I want to ask you about a specific uh, incident from February. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Mark Daniels was killed by a police officer in Homewood. The officer has been identified through the press, um, and he is at, this is actually the third time in a 10-month period that he has shot someone. On the previous two situations, uh, the people lived. Um, the family's description of the hours leading up to this incident don't suggest someone who was on the verge of an encounter with the police. And the family says he didn't own a weapon, while the police are saying he walked out from behind a building and started firing at them. What do you make of this incident? Um, I think this incident is extremely questionable. I think it's extremely questionable um, for several reasons. One, once I, I question leadership, and I wonder if Mark Daniels would be alive if leadership had been paying attention to their officer being so quick to shoot. Whether something is justifiable is a different question when you're asking, was it necessary, right? Uh, and so the law justifies things, justifies things, but it doesn't mean that it's necessary. And I think it is the responsibility of leadership when their officers are shooting someone, especially uh, so often in such little time, to say, were these incidents necessary? And do we need to sit this person down? Because after someone is involved in gunfire, why are we throwing them right back out there in the streets again so quickly anyway? Because obviously they may be a little quick, even if the first incident was a situation where this officer needed to use gunfire, they are still going to be more sensitive the next time and probably think that they need to use it every time. And so they probably need to be sat down and go through therapy for a little while before they're able to go back out there brandishing their weapon. The other um, problem with this situation is that the credibility of the officer's story. They say that this young man just started shooting at them. And as much as people like to watch TV and think that all young black men are crazy criminals and it's this wild, wild west scene, that is not the case. These are human beings like your mother, brother, sister, father, and son. And people are not walking around 
Homewood, pulling out guns and shooting police officers. If they were, they probably would have been doing it a long time ago because they have been brutalized in that neighborhood by the police for years. And so when you ask about the motive, they have no answer. And and that's a problem. And even their own officers know that that's a problem. And the fact that they're not transparent and honest about that, it makes it even more questionable. And right now, you know, personally, I'm not trusting Pittsburgh police too much. You know, I have a relationship with Chief Schubert and just like I had a relationship with Chief McClay. And I always tell them that your rank and file officers who are out here being corrupt, brutal and racist are not going to tell you that. So it's your job to find them. And it's your job to investigate them when people are telling you that they are exhibiting behavior that is showing that. And as a chief of police, that is what you should want because this is your house. And you should make sure that you have, you should make sure that all of the officers are clear on what your mission is, on what your values are, and what your expectations are of them. And I do not think that that is the case in Pittsburgh Police Department right now. I do believe it was the case when McClay was there. Even though they did not like it, they were clear. The organization's name is the Alliance for Police Accountability, but you actually are working in broader criminal justice reform spaces, uh, working on bail reform, sentencing reform. Can you talk a little bit about that, the, that, that mission, and why all of these issues tie together? Yeah, when we were fighting so hard um, and getting justice for Jordan Mouse, a lot of people called us. Other issues with police, but many had issues that weren't related to police, but related to the legal system. And since they thought we could help him, they thought we could help with everything. Uh, And so we got calls about people's children who were in fights in school who were now being charged with aggravated assault, and they didn't have a lawyer, and they didn't know what to do. We had people who would call and say that their um, loved one was arrested, and they couldn't find them in prison. Um, And they didn't know uh, they needed medication, and they didn't know if they had their medication. And we had people call who said that their son was in jail and it was his first offense. And because he said something to the police officer and the police officer was angry that his bail was $100,000, right? And so these are poor people. And so we start getting all these calls and people needed help. And so we're a needs-based organization. Um, The reason that we existed was because there was a need. Um, Nobody was standing up for Jordan. And the reason that we expanded is because there's a real need. When it comes to the criminal legal system, it's a, a system that is very intimidating. It's a system that is very powerful, and it's a system that is very destructive. Where can people go to learn more about APA? We do have a website, www.apapgh.org. Um, you can contact us at 412-256-8449, and we are also on Facebook, and Instagram, and Twitter. All right, Brandy, I appreciate your time. You're one of my sheroes. I really appreciate all your work, and it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. I look forward to the next time. Thank you to Brandy Fisher for her insights, for all of her hard work, and for everything that the team at APA does. In 2016, the ACLU of Pennsylvania and APA teamed up with several other organizations to defeat legislation that would have made it a crime for a public official to publicly identify a police officer who uses force and kills or seriously injures someone. Unfortunately, that bill made it through the General Assembly, but was defeated when Governor Wolf vetoed it. Now it's back. It's House Bill 27. 
The bill passed the House over a year ago in March 2017 and passed out of committee in the Senate in June 2017, but it has been idling on the Senate tabled calendar since then. Police officers serve the public, and thus they have a responsibility to be accountable to the public. The story of the police officer in Pittsburgh who shot three people in a 10-month period is a perfect example of why HB 27 is so destructive. The best thing you can do right now to stop this bill is call your state senator and tell them to vote no on HB 27. You can visit our legislative page at aclupa.org legislation. From there, you can find a link to our bills page, which has more information about HB 27. You can also use our Contact Your Legislator tool from that page to find your state senator's contact information. And we'll provide all of these links in the show notes. It's time for a new segment here on the podcast called Meet the Staff. From time to time, we'll hear from ACLUPA staff to learn more about their work and what issues they're dealing with on a daily basis. For our first Meet the Staff segment, I talked with Naima Sanchez. Naima is an organizer in our Philadelphia office working on transgender advocacy and smart justice. Naima, your job here at ACLUPA is organizer and transgender advocacy coordinator. What does that mean? What's a typical workday like for you? A typical workday is, uh, I mean, it, it varies. Like every day is different. So one day I could be working on trans rights or helping uh, someone in uh, Western Pennsylvania on, you know, trying to organize their groups. Or I could be working on CSJ, Campaign for Smart Justice, and like, organizing around get out the vote or things like that so you've been organizing community conversations around the state to hear from trans folks uh, about their concerns and to learn more about what challenges they're facing what have you learned from those conversations that we need protection i mean it's it's clear through speaking with uh, 211 trans folks from across the commonwealth um that Without statewide protection, uh, we we have a less chance of success. Um, folks are are not getting in or getting the proper education. They're not even getting education. They're not getting housing. Um, they're they're getting fired from employment. Um, they're facing discrimination in healthcare and in, in in other aspects like just going to a restaurant or washing clothes. Yeah, the smallest things that we take for granted, like just going to McDonald's. Um, is is a challenge for a trans folk, a trans person in, in Central PA, uh, which is different from me here in Philadelphia, where I can go to McDonald's and use any restroom that I want and not have any issue. They're not experiencing that same liberation where they're at. So um, understanding that there's difference, even though we're in one large state, which is a really large state, understand that we're in the same state. I can leave out of Philadelphia County and, and face discrimination or or, or or understand or, or or see what other trans folks outside of Philadelphia is experiencing. Yeah, it's really important to have, you know, to get that feedback as that then informs uh, our program. Now, I know you've also had at least one uh, event where you were um, inviting cisgender folks to hear more about the experience of being transgender. Um, what have those conversations been like? Has anything surprised you? One thing surprised me at an event that was uh, recent was uh, the question of, hey, why don't we just fight for 
uh, non-discrimination when it comes to gender and like why do we have to explicitly or um, expand sex discrimination and I was kind of confused at the question, you know, not being a lawyer and, and trying to have a proper way of, of explaining discrimination when it comes to sex and understanding what our civil rights protections are and like, like what your human rights are, you know, and like, I mean, everyone's confused or, or so curious about my sex, you know, me as a person, I, I just, I just think that, you know, if we group them all together, you know, then everyone will have protection and we don't have to go out and, and do this bill and do this bill. I just think it's, it's clear that uh, we need protections. Everyone needs protection. And, and this one particular event, you know, having that question really had me thinking, one, but also uh, understanding that people don't don't see it the same way I see it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I'm, I'm a trans person and I, like, I live amongst everyone else and like I have cis friends you know and, and understanding their viewpoints um, is is good and and also giving them a chance to understand our viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're also doing work with our campaign for smart justice which is our campaign to cut the prison and jail population in half and to combat racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Um, I know the campaign is just getting started, um, but what kind of work are you doing in that campaign? Well, uh, through CSJ, this was, uh, we we built this, or we worked on this coalition, the DA's coalition here in Philadelphia, um, to elect a, a DA uh, who was uh, uh, conscious of the issues here in the, in, in the city of Philadelphia that would uh, work to eliminate uh, the mass incarceration rate in the state of Pennsylvania. So um, that was one thing. I, I think that when people think of the ACLU and how we get involved with uh, political races is, is really not about endorsing a person, but endorsing an issue. Mm -hmm. um, letting people know where folks stand at on specific issues as it pertains to us as community. You know, Philadelphia, I mean, I have an experience of, of my own, and I don't know if that's worthy in this podcast, but, you know, being incarcerated or being detained for 19 months with, with an extremely high bail, knowing that I'm not able to meet that bail, not being released and, and sentenced or, I mean, in-housed in a facility with cisgender men and me being a trans woman was was violent, was harmful. I don't, I don't think that people understand that. When, when, when I think about CSJ, I also think about the intersecting communities with the campaign for smart justice. Like black and brown uh, individuals are are highly impacted by the criminal justice system or um, affected by mass incarceration, and trans folks are incorporated in that. You know, we are black and brown. We are people. Um, so I've been trying to intersect, or if you may, I've been trying to get people to understand that is it's not when when we think about in the mass incarceration, we have to think about gender identity as well and, and you know and, and and move into a campaign that's inclusive of everyone and not just black and brown men that actually segues well to my last question which is what do you think cisgender people should know about the transgender community um that we're awesome you know <laughs> that's i really want people to know that like i always say that we walk amongst you and we are ceos we're doctors we're organizers we're campaign directors soon we'll be presidents uh, or a president, um, I'm, you know, we're, we're elected officials, we're amazing people, and, and we need protections. And just because uh, I am transgender does not mean that I lose protection that a cisgender person has. 
these same protections that apply to to them should apply to me. So I just want them to, you know, the cisgender population to understand that we're awesome people. Uh, we need your support. You know, I support all these all these wonderful movements um, that directly like. They don't explicitly talk about being trans in these movements, but but I support these movements because our communities intersect, you know. And and when once people understand that our communities intersect, then we'll understand that everybody needs protection, and we have to fight for everyone's civil liberties. Well, Naima, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, and I'm sure we'll have you back soon to talk about the latest work that you're up to. Hey, thank you for having me. That wraps up this episode. Thank you to our guests today, Brandy Fisher of the Alliance for Police Accountability and Naima Sanchez from the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Are you following us on social media? The ACLU of Pennsylvania is on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, so be sure to check us out. Naima and I are both on Twitter. You can follow Naima at Naima Sanchez and myself at Freedom's Friend. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Technical support is provided by Ben Bowens. Our music is from bensound.com, and the executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Schuford. I'm your host, Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Thank you.